you have to kind of not be nice to be kind in some situations, right? To say what someone really needs to hear um, is, and, and that differentiation is really important. So I'm like, I think it's very, very critically important to be kind to one another. But often we have to be harsh. Often we have to be honest, which is like, the, how else are we supposed to maintain healthy boundaries in our relationship? Say, hey, you know, it really makes me uncomfortable when you do that. But like, and how many people that I see that get walked all over because they're nice? Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. In this podcast, I'll be unraveling the stories of high performers across sports, business, and wellness. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is John Dangler. John is the executive director of The Well, a Tampa, Florida-based nonprofit comprised of a community of people committed to living in direct relationship with the materially poor. They work to help people meet material needs, such as food and clothing, and do it in a way that provides opportunities to meet each other's spiritual needs as well. The well builds real strong relationships with the people it serves, and in that way, they engage needs holistically. One of the key ways that the well does this is through the Well-Built Bikes Initiative, a bike shop that provides access to affordable bikes and workshops ranging from repairs to safety. By accessing bikes that would have been considered garbage, as well as donations from supportive neighbors, well-built bikes ensures that all people who need a bike are able to own one. John's story of how he ultimately got to where he is today is also incredible. Surviving a near-fatal car accident and having a life-changing, mind-altering experience through LSD. In this interview, we get into the important distinction between being kind and being nice, his near-fatal car accident and life-changing experience taking LSD, the relationship between the rich and the poor, and his well-built bikes nonprofit. And so, without further ado, my interview with John Dangler. Cool. Well, John, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So maybe we can start this one off the beginning. Uh, like, where did you grow up and what was your upbringing like? Hmm. Well, when, uh, so I grew up, man, it's, I bounced around a bit as a kid. My dad was a um, salesperson with Maytag and he just kept getting promoted. And so they would move us around a lot. So I was born in Delaware, which uh, I don't know anything about. And then we went to Virginia and then my young childhood was mostly in Cleveland, Ohio. And then in fourth grade, we moved to Tampa, Florida. So I've been, as far as I'm concerned, Tampa's all there is. Like I have memories of childhood, like snow and things like that. But like, since fourth, since I was nine, I've been here in Tampa. Um, we, yeah, so we grew up, uh, I guess, Ohio, Cleveland and Tampa for the most part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So really enjoy the warm weather. I, I assume. I'm a big fan. Yeah. I mean, I like, I like our winter. I like the cool weather, you know, I mean, it gets brutally hot here, but honestly with the humidity and stuff, I think it's an easier hot than up North hot. Um, up north, I feel like is even hotter, even though the temperature might not be, it's just dry heat or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not like I visited places in the winter. Like I remember being in Denver one winter and we had to scrape all this ice off the window on the car we rented. And 
I remember looking through a parking lot of a bunch of people scraping their windows. And I thought I'm smarter than everyone who lives here because they <laughs> live here because they don't realize there's places that this doesn't happen. Like I, it's weird, but I'm like, I have zero inch. Like I snow's cool and all in movies and postcards and maybe <laughs> for like a quick ski trip, but I have zero. I'm like, I, it's baffling to me that we humanity doesn't just battle over the place that doesn't freeze. That's that, that and like, I, it's, it's confusing to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, people love it there and I'm like, that's, that's great. I'm, but I'm, I definitely, um, and, and like, I love the weather. I love the environment. Um, but then in particular, like I've, I've really fallen in love with my city. I'm in Tampa, Florida. And, um, I mean, and maybe some of that's, uh, uh just a commitment to the city. You know, it may not all just be because it's such an awesome city, but like, I am in love with it. And to the point that like, I almost don't even want to visit anywhere else. Like I, I'm very at home here, very committed to this place and yeah, I'm yeah. in love with it. Yeah. And what is it about Tampa that like you're so yeah. excited to about? Yeah. It's weird. It's like, it's like asking someone like, what do you love about your child? You know, there's just so many things I don't even know what to say, but I mean, I do love the weather. I love that we're, so we're near the Gulf, um, which is like an awesome version of the ocean because it's warm and it's calmer and it's whatever, but that's, I love being near the Gulf. I love the kind of Bay area. Um, I love the, the, the history and diversity here. So Tampa is a really interesting place. I mean, even as it was, Florida was annexed onto the early United States. I mean, there was, this was just like, basically like the Everglades, right? It was just uninhabited. And then there was, you know, so yeah, like, so from the native history, um, there's, a, you know, till where they finally brought a, a rail station down here and then the early Ebor kind of cigar worker. And like, the, there's just such a cool demographic type thing that evolved here. Uh, lots of cool organized crime history, which I'm super uh, into. I mean, I, and, and just generally like, I, I love that it's flat, honestly. I love that I'm not going uphill either direction. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I mean, and, and honestly, some of it, um, like I said, some of it may just be like, people love a kid because it's their kid. And this is like, I love this city because my city, like I just, I right. just, it's home, man. I'm in love with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And um, kind of knowing what you do now with, with well-built bikes, like, you know, and researching you and kind of the work that you've done, it seems like it's pretty obvious they have this like deep sense of service to the community and a lot of the people around you. Was was this sense of service something that's kind of always been a part of you or did that not really come about until you got, I guess, older and into your adult years? I doubt it. Um, I, I mean, I think I was, it's funny because I think I was a nice kid. I don't actually think I'm a nice person. I think I'm kind, but not necessarily nice. Um, but and I, I, I do make a big distinction between those, but I, I, no, I don't think so. I mean, you know, my parents encouraged me to do good things, whatever, be a good person, whatever. But I, I think, no, I think it came from a, a like a kind of a transformation that happened really in college. And I, I, um, No, I don't think I, and by the way, I'm also like a, a wild introvert too. So I don't think I ever have much interest in other people. Um, actually, I don't think a lot of that is even now. Um, it's not like, it, it's fun. I'm a bit of a weirdo in this way, which I, I think it's good. I mean, I think I'll, I'll last because of some of my temperamental features. Like 
Okay. Like I do work that would be defined as compassionate, but I'm not compassionate as in like, I, I don't feel it. Right. Like I don't, I don't feel bad for you, but I do believe in like the right action that you would say, like, that's a compassionate action, right? Someone's hungry. You feed the hungry, right? Right. But I'm not going to cry about it, it, that you're hungry or that kind of thing. And I actually think that's an interesting thing. Cause I think a lot of people that get into like compassion work are compassionate people and it eats them up because it all hurts so much. There's so much pain. There's so much suffering. There's so much. And it, and, and like, I'm really grateful for my insensitivity. Um, and my compassion is philosophical. You know, I have like conviction around these things. Like this is what you, this is what's right, what you do. And so mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know, but some of that is, um, yeah, I, I've like puzzled over it a lot. And I actually think it's why I've been able to last as long as I've had, I, I, I have been able to when other people don't, you know, but yeah, uh, I don't that's... think it comes naturally is what I'm getting at. Yeah. I had to like build a, a philosophy that put me in the right place and put me into right action and that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's really interesting. And like how you have this more so like a rational conviction to want to do this work rather than this kind of really deep rooted sense of compassion that's always been with you. If I kind of have that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And a lot of it. So I was in a car accident when I was 17, smashed my entire face, broke every bone that has a lot to do with it because um, I went into a kind of pain. So I actually don't think I had that same resilience prior to so much suffering personally. And I do think it was shaped in me a little bit, not just from hitting my head, though that may have played a small role, but in like such a long stretch of what seemed like really pointless, prolonged pain. And and then the, the transformation that emerged as that became meaningful to me. And, and so like, I think that had a big part of it. And so like, for example, right in high school, after that, I was, it was my senior in high school and I'm put back in school, probably arguably too early. I had my mouth wired shut stables in my head. I was in a wheelchair. I couldn't speak like, and they pushed me back into high school really just because of the, like the doctors were like, this kid's too depressed. You got to get him back in school. And when you're in a wheelchair, they let you out of class five minutes early. So you don't get trampled in the hallways as you could imagine you would. So I get out five minutes early to get to the next class before they ring the bell. And I see all these kids with disabilities and I'd, I literally have never seen them in my life. Like I've never noticed any of these people. And now I'm like one of them and I'm among them. And, and, and I did not, I was not happy about that. Right. I was like, I need to claw my way back out of it. I need to get back into the nor- being normal or whatever. But I do think it gave me some sort of a familiarity with the outcast and a familiarity with suffering that has that has stuck with me forever so it's not like when i see someone hurting i hurt but i see them hurting and i know what it means right like it it's weird it's like it's a different thing entirely i don't know that it's entirely rational i think it's like but it is it is reasonable like i built up something like rational like a philosophy although mm-hmm. i think i'm trying to reach ecstatically beyond uh what is <laughs> what where that'll get you right i'm trying to like yeah reach a little further than reason can take me and experiment. A lot of what I do, I do consider like experimentation. Like I'm kind of a practical philosopher. Like I have an idea, so I should go try it. Like in right. the real world, in the alley and see how it goes and then come back and think about it some more and and like kind of evolve in that way a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And uh, 
you mentioned like the distinction earlier between being kind and being nice. Can you talk about that? Oh man. So I, I, this is like a soapbox I've been getting on all the time. So, okay. So I'll tie it to my accident because I do think it was somewhat shaped there. So I smashed every bone in my face. And at the time, I mean, you can imagine, like I might look okay now and they put me back together pretty good. <laughs> like I, I, a lot of people wouldn't even know that that happened. Like this is all metal plating and my nose was put back fake teeth and all this stuff. But like, yeah, I, I wouldn't have. Yeah. I wouldn't have. Right. Yeah. Right. And I've known people hurt way less that you could tell, like, you're like, Oh, you got jacked up. I got like, they did a great job and they put me, you know, it's, it's a miracle really. Like how much, uh, I mean, it's scars places. And so you'd be like, like, I've had people like, Oh, are you a fighter? You know? Cause it's like, yeah, they, it looks like you've been in a lot of scraps maybe, but people felt bad for me. And so they said what they thought I wanted to hear. And rather than what was obviously true, which made me question everybody, except my best friend. who's was like, dude, you look like shit, which I really appreciated and felt like a kind of kindness. Like he's the only person I can talk to. He's the only person that I can trust, which anyone who heard him thought that what an appalling thing to say to this poor kid who just went through hell, whatever. And yet for me, it was grace. It was grace to hear someone say the thing that I would, I knew to be true. Right. And so that became something that like, I started to think a lot about. And so like, I know another example, right? I knew um, there was a, a buddy of mine, a, a friend that was on the spectrum. This is not the same person, but later in life, right? This guy was on the spectrum, um, really has, you know, can't read social cues very well. Um, and so he would stand way too close. He would talk way too loud. Um, like 100% of the time made people very uncomfortable, right? And everybody was giving him like all the nonverbals in the world um, and even like almost running away from him at times. And, and it was very sad. Um, like it was really unfortunate, you know? And he was very, very smart. Like when it came to like logic, mathematics, like he was very smart kind of, you know? And um and so another friend who's quite disagreeable like me and temperamentally said, Hey man, why don't you come in here, sit in my office for a few minutes. And he, uh, so he did some stuff. He's like, we we're talking. He's like, what am I doing right now? Like, and he, he starts like looking around. He's like, you're looking for something. He's like, okay. And then he did, a, he did like all of these nonverbal things. And then he, he kept asking him like, what am I doing? What does this mean? And they couldn't get it. Right. And so he said like, Hey, listen, um, there are things that people do that equal things that they're trying to say. And so he started trying to explain nonverbals to him. And he was like, they're saying back up. They're saying it's not a good time. They're saying, you know, whatever. And he started, and he just, and he said all of the things that no, that everyone was too nice to say, but he just explicitly said like, people are very uncomfortable when you talk to them. And this is why, and you actually can learn to pick up on this. So you don't naturally pick up on it, but there are things that you just, this equals this, this equals this. And he bought a book and he's like, I'm going to show you this book and you're going to study this book that like teaches nonverbal communication. And it's not like that dude became great at it, whatever. But I remember he, he, he was like, well, if that's what they're saying, why don't they just say it? And I actually think that's a great question. Right. But, but yeah. it, it was a, it was like, it's one of these things where it's like, man, you have to kind of not be nice to be kind in some situations, right? To say mm -hmm. what someone really needs to hear um, is, and, and that differentiation is really important. So I'm like, I think it's very, very critically important to be kind.
to one another. But often we have to be harsh. Often we have to be honest, which is like, the, how else are we supposed to maintain healthy boundaries in our relationship? Say, hey, you know, it really makes me uncomfortable when you do that. But like, and how many people that I see that get walked all over because they're nice. And actually what really drove this home was reading, um, and actually my wife is the one that really, really read this and talked to me about it. But um, there's a, 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 I don't even know how you frame this guy, psychologist maybe, um, Gaber, Gaber Mate, I think is how you say his name. Sure, yep. And he wrote a book called When the Body Says No. And it was very interesting talking about these, um, these autoimmune disorders that people have like Lou Gehrig's, whatever. And he's like, and he actually said, there are, there are times where someone will come in and say, I think I have this. And he's like, and doctors can, without any tests say, no, you don't. And they'll be like, how do you know, how do you know that they don't have that disease? And they're like, they're not nice enough. And, and actually it equates. They're like, he's like, no, you can go. He's like, nice people get sick because they're not, they don't, it's, 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 so you'd have to read the book and it's controversial, but he's like, right. there are ways in which not saying your truth, not being honest, internalizing all of your turmoil, rather than like letting it out into the world will kill you. And I was like, oh, that so resonates with this thing that I already believe. And it resonates with my experience through that car accident. And I just became, and I, I think temperamentally, I was already kind of like, I don't give a fuck what you think. And then, and then I was like, oh, this is actually really important actually. And, and so, man, I'm constantly grabbing people like, uh, around me when I watch, I see people being nice and I know they're violating themselves or they're allowing someone to violate them. And they're doing it because they think that's how to be Christian or that's how to be nice, or that's how to be good, or that's how to be compassionate. And I'm like, man, compassion does not equal compassion actually means to suffer with, you can go suffer with the suffering, but that doesn't mean let them talk to you any way they want. That doesn't mean have no self-respect. That and and so that distinction is really important to me, and I beat that drum constantly. And it's actually like interesting because I I actually I find that it's not common. It's not a common distinction, but it's so crystal clear to me. And I'm like, this plays out in everything. This is yeah. This is important in your marriage. It's important in your business. It's important in your customer relationships. It's important in, you want to work with the homeless? Listen, you're going to have to learn how to shoot straight. You know what I mean? And, and those are things that I'm like, and that, that distinction is really important. So yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm committed to kindness, but I do not value niceness. In fact, I, 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 I'm completely suspect of niceness. Like I'm like nice equals lying. That's probably an overstatement, but it works really well for me. I'm like, don't be nice. That's not good. That's not a virtue. Yeah, I love that. That's that's super interesting. And it's almost like like the easy path is being nice versus like the hard path is is being kind. And that's where like the rewards are. Yeah, that's right. And then the nice is the voice like, that's no, okay. I can put up with it. I I'll take all it's martyrdom. I'll take all the burden on me. I, you know, I'm like, okay, but you're gonna regret it when you're in codependent relationships and you're internally balled up and sick and you got ulcers and like people walk all over you and your marriage is unhealthy. I'm like, man, it, it's a, it's a date. I'm like, that's a niceness is a road to hell. Mm -hmm. It's really weird. It's counterintuitive, but I'm like convinced of it. Yeah. You no. Know? Yeah. Well, and yeah. then luckily I'm not a very nice guy. Okay. Like, like in general. So maybe I built a philosophy to like suit my temperament, but it, but it, and it, it does. 
it, it empowers something that comes quite because I'm temperamentally quite disagreeable. I'm sure you can already pick up on that, you know? Yeah, and, no, um, I did. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, that, but that's why, by the way, if I wasn't committed to kindness, if I wasn't committed to a life of compassionate action like this, so there is a real way in which a lot of my convictions and commitments, they don't come natural to me. And I know what would come natural to me. And I could be your worst neighbor, like temperamentally. I think I have like the natural makeup that could like really hurt you and sleep just fine. And, and I'm committed to not being that person, but I actually think it wouldn't be that difficult for me. Like, I think some people that'd be very hard. I don't think it would be that hard for me. And I, that, that horrifies me actually. Cause I know people that are like me that do those things. And mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, I get it. Actually. I could be a villain. Okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's super interesting. Um, so you alluded to it before, but you had this like pivotal night, um, in college that sort of like changed everything for you. And I, I'm guessing that's the night where you took a bunch of LSD. Mm -hmm. Um, so but before that, like what, like, what was the, I guess, trajectory of your life looking like? And like, what did you think you wanted to do for a career well, and all that sort of stuff? An artist. Okay. So I've always been good at drawing. And ever since I was a little kid, I just wanted to draw, paint, you know, create pictures, comic books, you know, that kind of stuff. And I wasn't that interested in anything else. I wasn't that into sports. Um, I was into like individual things. Like I like skateboarding, but like teams and stuff like that. I was, it, it's like, I wanted to kind of be, I was like the reclusive artist, like just leave me alone. I'm going to paint a picture or whatever. And I actually, when I, when I went to college, um, initially I was going to go for art, like art school. And, um, and then my, when my car accident, and I was also really into film. So um, I was never a musician, but I like playing guitar and stuff like, you know, but I was into art and that led me into photography. So composition, but then I became obsessively. And I think a lot of this, like I was into movies already, but after my car accident, I was like doomed to a couch for a year. Right. So I just became a film. It was like film school time. I was like, I'd read a film book, but like, ma, go rent all these books, all these movies. I gotta, I gotta watch all these old movies. I gotta learn about filmmaking. And I got really into that. And I was like, filmmaking seems like the highest form of art. Like it, it incorporates writing and picture and music and, you know, all of the elements. Um, and I got really into that. And so there was a time I, I started writing a script for a movie while I was recovering. Um, so I wrote, I drew just creative stuff, you know? And then I actually thought when I was going to go to college, I actually applied to FSU's film school. Um, but then I, oh, no, I was in the middle of applying. So I was writing it and you, you had to make, you had to send a film in, which I hadn't made a film. Like, That's going to be difficult. I don't have the equipment, whatever. But then I read more on the like admissions page. And I was like, they only take 30 kids a year and only 15 of those will be new students like others will be transferring into this from another and I was like I'm not even gonna like I, I, I'm not gonna do all this work for something that I'm definitely not gonna get you know and so I was like I'll just go to USF near home and my parents really were pushing me to stay in town they almost lost me the year before right so mm -hmm. they're like listen if if you could just stay in town like we'll we'll help you like get your own place we know you want to kind of start over like we'll, we'll help you but like we almost lost you it'd be great if you were nearby 
And so I ended up going here in Tampa to USF. And when I went, I was like, well, I just do art, you know. Um, I was pretty uninterested in it though right away because I've been doing art my whole life. I was quite good at it. And then you go to art classes and you have to get the credits, but I'm in like art 101, like draw a circle, shade a sphere kind of stuff. And I was like, man, this this is remedial. You know what I mean? And like, mm-hmm. it's important. Um, and I just, I wasn't that into it. Um, but yeah, that, that's what I, I think I thought I was going to do. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I was a caricature artist at Bush Gardens here in Florida. Um, I worked as a photographer for a while. Um, I did a lot of those kind of things. I mean, it was hard though. Cause my, you know, the, the starving artist thing is quite real. So it wasn't like I had any hope of making money. I think I've always been, so my dad was really into money. And I always had a bit of a like, I don't want to be that way. So I knew being an artist would be like a life of poverty, so to speak, material poverty. Um, and I had hope maybe I could get by. Um, and then like the life I have now is not exactly lucrative. You know what I mean? But like I, a lot of that I think is connected to like my dad was like, money's everything. Let's make money, um, keep money, save money. <laughs> Just and, and, you know, but, but because he did that, we were taken care of kind of how we needed and so it was real privilege to that um but it did also kind of give give me a bit of a um, bad taste in my mouth for you know being about money and so yeah I thought I was going to be an artist as far back as I can remember I think that's all I ever wanted to do yeah interesting and so and then now talk to me about what changed and like that night you took the LSD well yeah so I mean this is, this is connected to my car accident for me. So my car accident happened the beginning. It was Halloween night, the beginning of my senior year in high school. I was 17 and um, I almost died. Then I went through like a year or whatever. I forget how long, just like pain and suffering and turmoil. So I went back, finished high school, got, you know, and then I went to USF and, and at, in my recovery. Um, so I had used drugs like smoking pot and taking LSD and stuff before. Like I started doing that at like 14, probably um, drinking, whatever. And, and then obviously after my car accident, I didn't have opportunity to do anything except pain meds. I really liked, I mean, I needed pain meds, but then like they gave them to me for so long that becomes a, that's pretty habit forming pretty fast opiates. So I was like, you know, I was using painkillers, not as like recreational just to survive that year. And then, um, but then the first time I ever left the house, uh, my, my parents let my friends take me to a music store. So for y'all youngins, back in the day, we had stores where there was like headphones and you go listen to music. It's where they sold CDs, which are little discs that played music. So I know a lot of folks don't even know what that is anymore. But like we went to the music store and they picked me up. I got in the car with these buddies and I was so excited to just leave the house. But I was on crutches. My mouth was wired shut. I had a hole in my throat from a tracheotomy. So for me to talk, I had to cover this hole in my throat so air wouldn't escape to be able to talk. And then I could talk through a a wired shut mouth. And this top lip was like really high up here. So over time, I just pulled it. I would pull on my lip to get it back to where it belonged. Like it took a long time, but it was really like it because of the way it stitched inside or whatever. Anyway, Mm -hmm. telling you all that to say, as soon as we got in the car, they started smoking a bowl. And I was like, yo, I want to smoke. And they're like, uh, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, but it took like four of us for me to smoke because I had to hold my lip down around it, put a finger in my throat. Someone else, like, it was like a, it was like a team operation to help me <laughs> take a tote. Right. 
Yeah. But by the time we got to the music store, I was like, I feel like I'm all better. Like, like I felt relief in a way that I hadn't felt since my car accident. And I actually felt like drugs are going to be my savior, like in a really profound way. And so I, I tell you that to say, like, when I went to college, um, shortly after that, I was like head first, like drinking out. So I had severe depression. Um, I was pretty much suicidal, but I wasn't going to do it to myself, but I would live like we, I remember one day, like breaking in a house and we found a bottle of pills. We didn't know what they were. So I just took a bunch of them and said, I'll let you know what they are. You know, like when they hit, like I like foolishness, right? Like I was just, you would think like, oh, now you're not going to drink and drive, but it's like, hmm, no, that's not how it worked. I was so reckless after this, right? Um, for about however long, maybe a year, two years. I don't know. I don't know. The t- I'm really bad with timelines, but like, and I was, and then I started taking, like, I got among all other things, LSD was my absolute favorite. Like it felt, it actually felt like it was an important thing for me to be doing to me. And I started going to the library and listening to um, like these old recordings of like Timothy Leary and like the, you know, there's this whole like psychedelic experience and the reading the Tibetan book of the dead. And I was getting really into philosophy and ethics at the time. I actually was considering at that point, I was like, I should switch my major to, to philosophy. And then, and I was considering that and I was doing all this. Well, then one night I got my hands on some LSD that was out of this world, unlike anything that I'd ever had. And I'd had a ton of LSD, um, but I got it and it, it just sent me out of this world. Um, but I, I basically, the, I'll just to not flesh that story out and take forever. I, I basically met God on this. Like I had an absolute religious experience that just changed everything about my life. And, and the, there's a ton of takeaways, but the major thing is, hey, John, all of that pain and all of that suffering and that car accident, that thing that you are like, hate the idea of me because that you feel like the, the universe conspired against you, that if there is a God, he's horrible, you want nothing to do with him. That is, that was what was necessary to get your attention. And I have purpose for you related to the pain. So but you needed that to prepare you for what's to come. And it was, it was like, it gave meaning and purpose to the suffering that had seemed like this prolonged pointless pain became like this invested time that had like calling attached to it. And when, when I came off those drugs, I was like, I'm a Christian. Like I just met God and be probably because of being Irish and coming up Catholic. I, I understood that. Cause it wasn't like I saw Jesus, but I, I, in, I incorporated that in my own mind. Like I'm a Christian, right? I actually didn't know any Christians at the time, which is weird. Like my mom, except my mom, my mom, like, and I didn't even know much about that. I just knew she prayed all the time when I had my car accident. So like, well, she prays. So she's probably a Christian. And, um, and then I later found out one of my neighbors was a Christian, but I just didn't, I was too dense to like, I just thought when I'd offer him weed and he said, it's against my religion, it was a funny way to just say no. Um, turned out, no, he actually just thought it was wrong and didn't want to smoke weed or whatever. But, but so I did know a couple of Christians, I just didn't realize it, but I, I, it, it, it transformed my life. And I was like, okay, I'm, I need to, you know, like religious language, people say repent. Well, that just means turn around. And now I was like, I need to turn around. Like I am, I am recklessly and selfishly going the wrong direction. And there's somewhere else I need to go. I need to turn around. And so I started, I moved out. Uh, I moved home. 
I was about to get kicked out of school anyway. I was on academic probation. Um, I was I was in tons of trouble with the dorms. In fact, I had to go to mandatory counseling to be allowed to stay on campus at that point. I mean, I, I was not good for that season. Like, remember the whole, like, I could be a villain? Like, I was kind of, like, in that <laughs> space a little bit, but just kind of in, in party mode a little bit. And so I was like, man, I'm going to move back. I called my parents. I want to move back in. I was like, hey, mom, I want to I want to change my life. I told her, like, I, I'm starting a relationship with God. She was excited about that. But that's the only way I the only language I had for what happened there was like, that's God. Uh, it's so beyond everything I've ever known or seen. And so, yeah, that that's what happened to me. And it was directly that's why I had to go back to the car accident, because like those were bookends of an experience. Right. Right. Crash. And then like encounter God. And it took two years between the, I was like, I crashed at 17 and that happened at 19, basically. So wherever I messed up the timeline, that it was two years apart from one another. So a year of recovery, maybe in a year of college, maybe something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, man. And, and to this day, I'm like, I am shaped by that night in, in some serious ways. It wasn't like, oh, I had a trip. It was like, I was transformed ontologically um by what happened that night and to this day that's true yeah that's that's, that's a crazy story yeah and what's funny though what's funny and some listeners may like let you know this but like i've told that story enough now like at first it was a c i was like oh, i can't tell mom how that happened right and like but eventually mm -hmm. i'm like you know i don't care what people think and this is what happened i'm gonna tell the truth um and then i tell that story um and i i'm blown away by how many people i mean i've had old men like I shared it at this open mic thing at a rooming house here in town. We, we run this open mic with just a bunch of poor folks, but the owner of the building is like 70, maybe just this quiet old man. And he walked up to me after this night, I shared this story publicly. And he's like, that's what happened to me on mushrooms. Like, like the same, like I was doing this, I took mushrooms and ever like at, why I do what I do goes back to that night. And I'm like, wow, it's actually quite common of a story. Um, and it's just fascinating, fascinating. I've been, and, and because related to that, I've, I'm just fascinated with some of the studies that are going on right now at Johns Hopkins, psychedelic stuff, because yeah, I'm like, it's, it's Oh, big, that's yeah. important to me. But I'm also like, man, like there's something going on there. I'm not running around telling people to take LSD and it's going to change your life, but it could, I mean, it could change for better or worse, I guess. But like, yeah, that, that is my story. And that's, it is what it is. Yeah. Take from it what you will. <laughs> All right. And so after all this experience, like, do you leave, you must've let, like left that partying lifestyle. I would assume immediately, immediately. immediately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I did. Um, yeah. And, and I moved home. Um, and I, what was really interesting, this was weird, man. My best friend who wasn't at college, he lived in the old neighborhood, but I grew up with him like by my parents' house. So he still lived with his parents. And we had been in a fist fight, he and I, like a week before or something like that. Like we were not good at this point. Well, we were best friends. We're good ultimately. But at that point, we last I saw him, we were not friends. Right. And I moved home and I was like, you know, I got to go like apologize. Right. And so I went to his house and his parents were like, yeah, he's upstairs. And I walked in, I went to see him and there was a Bible open on his floor, which by the way, I was not going to tell him like what happened to me because the nature of our relationship would be entirely different because like, that's not going to work, bro. Like you can't, 
you can't say that's the life you want to go lead now because of the way what we do like how we live and what our relationship is built on right but when i showed up there there's a bible open on the floor and i was like are you you reading the bible and he kicked it shut and he said yeah, i looked at it and i had like a little pocket bible in my back pocket and i pulled it out i was like me too man i've been looking at it i got i got some serious questions he's like i got and then i was like let me tell you what happened to me and he said let me tell you what happened to me and we're not sure because we were high and i don't know the exact like night what whatever but we were like in the same week earlier he had had almost the same experience on ecstasy so he had this really crazy experience where he's like the way he framed he's like jesus carried me home that night and i was like what and and i remember <laughs> in the room with this dude neither of us have ever talked of any of this like this is so foreign but something happened to both of us on these drugs and i remember being in the room that day and say and he said i'm gonna i'm gonna start reading about and trying to be like or follow jesus and i was like are you serious? And he's like, I'm serious. I was like, well, I'm going to do the same thing. And we shook on it. I remember saying like, all right, shake on it. Cause like, if you're going to do it, like we're in, right. We're going to read something and then we're going to go try to do it, whatever. And we shook on it. And really for like the next year and a half, we, I didn't even talk to anyone else about this. It was just that he became like, all right, it's you and me. Like we didn't go to church. We didn't get involved with anything. Um, it's just, we'd get together and read something and then go try to figure out how to like apply it or whatever. And, um, but yeah, it was really, really weird experience, but that, so yeah, I moved home and then, um, I got a lot healthier. Like I, you know, so after my car accident, I was pretty skinny and I wasn't exactly taking care of myself moving home. I got access to good food. I got time to go to the gym. I, you know, now mm -hmm. I'm getting more, like I started reading more than ever. And so that's, yeah, it, it changed everything for me just to not be out partying, using drugs all the time, start building healthier habits, you know, and, um, yeah, it was a big transformation. Yeah. And it was it was really cool that I wasn't alone in it because I had a neighbor, mm -hmm. a best friend and a brother who had always been there with me who had something very similar happen at the almost the exact same time. And mm -hmm. as far as we know, it was the same night. We just aren't sure of that. It, it was very close, though. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. And uh, are you still in touch with him? OK, so that's a sad story. I'm not. And I don't have much of a story to tell here. He ended up um so we were young right um and if you know much about schizophrenia it's like late 20s for men um he really went off the deep end um major major schizophrenia um he his brother his older brother is like my closest friend and I, and we like he was always just the older brother that was around but in a major way we lost him he's alive but we lost him like he started seeing everyone as demonic and like it, it it's really bad Mm -hmm. And his brother and I are basically best friends in a, in a large way. I think we kind of like filled a real hole for each other, but like where he disappeared more or less to us, we connected, like became brothers in that way. Um, I'm not, I'm not in touch with him. He actually doesn't like, he, 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 he basically don't want to talk to anyone, but his mom ever. Like he's, it's a really bad situation. He's not well. And I haven't caught up with him in a long, long time. So I don't know like the latest, but no, I, lo I lost him to mental illness, you know? Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah, it is. All right. So let's, um, maybe let's shift gears here a little, sure. here a little and fast forward. So talk to me about the house that you rented with friends where you welcomed in impoverished people to eat, do laundry, sleep, et cetera. Like how that came about. 
Yeah. So, okay. Well, let me, I'm going to get you from there to here then. Like, right. So I, I, this, this kid and I start reading the Bible and we're like, all right, we're going to try to live it out, you know? And we didn't go to church or anything. And so, you know, I'll give you an example. Like there's a passage, you'll say like bear, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you have two jackets, give to someone who has none. And we'd close it and be like, that's all you need to read. Like, do you have two jackets? Can you go get one? Can we go find someone that needs it? Right. And we would just do our best. Uh, and there's like some funny stories where we, you know, one day, I mean, one day I was like, dude, I haven't seen this guy in a week. And I went over and I'm like, bro, you never come out. And he's like, yeah, I read in James, like pure religion, um, is to keep oneself unspotted by the world or something like that. Visit the uh, orphans and widows and keep oneself unspotted by the world. So I can't let anyone spot me. And I was like, mm, I don't think that, I think you got that wrong, you know, but it was like this effort to just like, we read it, we try to do it very concrete, very like whatever. We didn't have any uh, Christians around to tell us we don't actually do that, which is what we found when we started going to church. Well, one night um, I was at his house and I was really hungry. And they had all these people downstairs. So Wednesday night and I'm like, dude, I'm going down there and grabbing something out of the kitchen. I basically grew up in his house a lot. You know, I went down there, walked through this room and I'm like hearing in the other room, like they're studying the Bible. So I went back up and I'm like, bro, you know, they have like a, they're studying the Bible down there. He's like, that's what they do. My parents always have people over once a week, but I didn't know what they did. And I'm like, yeah, they have like a Bible study. That's what they do. So we ended up saying, Hey, can we sit in, which they were excited to have young people. They're all gray haired, older people. We joined them. And then what, what, so like now I've been trying to do this for like a year and a half, but never been to a church really never gotten plugged in with anyone that would have called themselves a Christian. I, I wasn't even sure how like those words necessarily. Right. So super unchurched, but they're like, Hey, we go to church and I'm like, Oh, okay. So we went and immediately I was like, uh, I hate this. And what does this have to do with anything we've been reading? And like, it's, it's just a, it's like a place that, plays bad music uh with they just say jesus name but i don't see what any of this has to do with anything he stood for or taught or whatever and i hated it but i thought it was just me because everyone seems super happy to be there and i was like okay well i'll keep coming so i went there for a, a while and then one day they um i don't know the pastor announced some like building campaign they're gonna raise however many million dollars three million dollars for this building and i was like you know what and i didn't have all these convictions about justice and the poor and like that i was just like that's stupid and i quit going i was like i don't want anything to do with church anymore i'm done but um that, that, that because i'm serious about this person of jesus right and it, like th you guys are missing the whole thing here so i leave so then what would happen is i one night heard about another church that was feeding the homeless. And I thought, now that sounds like something maybe that's familiar. You know, I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was like, all right, cool. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to that. So I went to that and it wasn't a service. It wasn't like a church service. It was like a, you know, a dinner. And, and they had a, a van that went out downtown and I rode with the van, went downtown. And I sat in the alley uh, with a guy that night while he ate his dinner, just squat down next to him, listen to his story. And I went home that night. I remember the alley reeked of urine and this dude, we had so much in common. He had a beautiful story. Um, I, we had a lot in common, you know, but he's like, like completely destitute, right? Hoping someone comes by with some food. And I went home that night and uh, I was like, man, like, I don't want to live in a world that works this way. Like I have food in the fridge. I've got 
a car in the driveway. I've got running water that heats up, a roof over my head, extra blankets, clothes in the closet. And this beautiful brother is like sleeping in an alley, hoping some church person comes by with food. And, and I just hate, I was like, I, this is not how the world work, should work. I don't want to be a part of this world. And, and so I was like, well, you either opt out of the world, like leave it like suicide or something or do something about it. And so over time, what would happen is I, that began what I've come to call like the haunting, like that began to haunt me. And then I, I began to make up excuses to be with folks that were on the streets or, and, and, and it's, it's fairly selfish too. Cause it was like, I've been learning so much from them there. They have a perspective on the city and sobriety that I'm on. Um, and when I say sobriety, I don't mean without drugs. I mean, like sobriety is in not living an illusion, you know? how the world actually works. And I, and I, and so what I did was, um, eventually this is years later, but I, I talked a bunch of friends into moving into a house, uh, in the city. It was on the main drag between two housing projects in a very poor neighborhood. It was one of the hottest, like if you pulled out a police map, you're like, well, there's where all the action is. It's like, cool, let's get a house and let's move in. We'll all live there. And if we all live in one house, which by the way, poor people do all over the world, there's no reason 12 of us can't live in a three bedroom home. Like poor people do that everywhere. We don't, not everyone needs their own room. Not everyone needs their own, you know, it's like, so one, our culture has taught us we're supposed to be comfortable. Our culture has taught us we're supposed to be safe. Our culture has taught us we're supposed to think about ourselves, like all of these things, not trust strangers. And I had, and I saw I'm growing these convictions about like, the, the place of the poor in history and like how much we can learn from them. And, and what I came to see is like the wealth of the poor. Like we need to, we need what they have and they need some of what we have like socks, you know, and maybe we can exchange those. Like we get wisdom, they get shoes, you know, like that kind of thing, like reciprocal relationships. So I talked a handful of dudes into moving into this house and we wrote what we call the declaration of interdependence, which I have, oh, it fell. Yeah, I just rearranged my office. So I have uh, like a poster of it to this day I've kept. But it was like, here's a bunch of values and convictions about like, like a driving value of hospitality. Like the door should be open, right? You don't close the door. Now, obviously you close the door at night, but like theoretically the door stays open. Someone comes to your door, you welcome them in regardless, you know? And we, and we were really inspired by the Catholic worker of history. So back in the twenties, there was a group of Christian, what they call Christian anarchists that started this thing called the Catholic Work worker, which was Dorothy Day, Peter Moore. And these are heroes of mine, but like a lot of the bread lines from the great depression you'll see in history, that was them. So they would be like, we need to feed the hungry. And then they'd open up what they called houses of hospitality for the poor, which was like flop houses. Like if you got nowhere to be, you got evicted, just come sleep here. And people would pile up in these houses. And, um, and I was like, I want to do that. Like, let's do that. Now we didn't have, those were a lot harder places than what we had, but we were like, all right, well, there's a bunch of us here, but we have a couch. And so um, we just opened up a house. It was on Lake Avenue. So we called it the Lake House. And we actually printed business cards that had our address on it and a phone number at the time. I don't know if you can still do this, but Google Voice had just come out. So we made a phone number and we programmed all of our phones to ring if someone called it. So it wasn't any of our phone number, but it was all of our phone number. And so we all programmed that number in our phone and it just said, so when someone called it, it would say like Lake House Helpline. And then we actually had like a more than the people that lived with us who said, I'll, I'll, you put my number on there. 
And so our vision was like someone in need calls this line and every person in the city of Goodwill's phone will ring and someone could pick it up and be like, yeah, what's up? What do you need? Oh, you need a ride? Oh, let me see if we can help. You know, that kind of thing, like whatever it was. So we did that. We're like, look, if we have a shower and people need showers, we need to let them use our shower. So we opened our house, said, come shower. Uh, we started gathering food. And like, you're hungry. There's the fridge. You need a place to sleep, use the couch. And so we just did our best to kind of embrace like a radical form of hospitality. And we did that for about three years in that location. Um, of course, we had everything we owned stolen from us. So no one was able to keep a computer. Cars were disappearing, that kind of thing. And eventually, as you'd imagine, the wheels came off of that. I mean, it was absolute mayhem, but it was also just beautiful, man. We had people living on the porch. There was a flat spot on the roof some people slept on. We had people in the yard. <laughs> yeah. um, the house was full. But then eventually, like, the house got broken into so much. Um, none of us had computers anymore the someone got stabbed in our kitchen and then one oh, of the geez. housemates started like twitching i'm like he's having a nervous breakdown and so like little by little we were like mm. and so the well actually emerged because we said we need to move this out of our home and so we mm -hmm. rented that's when we formed like an organization so we could rent a building down the street so we're like we're going to keep doing this but we'll have a place that we can close at night and then go home and then we still did stuff at the house but like at a much uh less extreme way but yeah, we just, it was weird. Like we were all convinced, like we should, we should die for the cause basically. And we're like, well, cool, but not actually die. Just let go of everything. <laughs> like it was very fight club. We actually used fight club a lot as like a model. Like you want to live here. You need to stand on the front porch for three days without food or encouragement. Like you need, this is war here. Like you, this is the war, <laughs> this is the war of love. Like you're going to love your neighbors no matter what it costs you. And, um, and, and we did our best and we joked, like, we don't do anything right, but our communal tombstone will read, they tried. And, and we were super <laughs> proud of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. no, three years. That's, that's, um, that's amazing. At least, at to least, me that you stuck at it least out three for, years. Yeah. You stuck mm -hmm. it out for some people and came and gone, but the core group was there most of that time. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. And mostly like college age to be clear. Like, and I, and by the way, I, I'm a huge advocate of this. Like if you're in college, people in college, I'm like, whether you're trying to live that kind of life or you're just trying to start a business or you're just trying to get up on your future. If you put that many people in one house, you can live on nothing. So we could live for like a hundred, 200 bucks a month each. So we didn't need to work. So we had all of our time available to do the work in the neighborhood and uh, the work of like community building. And then at the same time, we were like, and I'm like, man, that if, if you want to launch a business, I'd say move 12 people into one house. You want to do good in your community, move 12 people into one. I'm just like, that just economically was amazing. Um, mm -hmm. Interpersonally relate, like to this day, I could not see those people for years. Um, in fact, I was just talking to a buddy, like we haven't hung out in a long, long time, but like we ran into each other the other night and I'm like, man, isn't this weird how we're just like, I, and I'm like, I think that's what happens to soldiers. Like we have something I don't have with anyone because we did that together. And forever, mm -hmm. no matter how many years go by or what happens, like, I just don't think anything will change the fact that we are like something different exists between us as a bond. And it's powerful. Like it's palpable when we see each other. Yeah. 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 That's great. And then, uh, maybe just in the interest of time here, um, mm -hmm. we, we, can, sorry, uh, I know I'm long winded, man. Nah, no worries. Um, we can just, uh, get into well-built bikes and what mm -hmm. you do now. Well, yeah. So, so, well, so I said we went and rented a building down the street, right? And so the well is the name of the nonprofit. And the well 
for another three years in that location ran what we call a daytime drop-in center for the homeless. So six days a week, you could come in, take a nap on the couch, take a shower. We had a, what we called our free market. So a little grocery store that was free, come in and get groceries you need. And then I had a bunch of convictions about work. So I was like, man, these people don't have jobs, but they need to work. Like, I don't care if you have a job, like you need to work like for your own good, for your own sake. So people don't have work and they don't have food. So let's go out in the garden, let's go out in the yard and start some gardens and we'll work together to grow food. Well, one of the things that emerged there was what we called the recycle bin. So one day, one of our volunteers was helping someone fix a bike uh, and like, like a flat tire or something. I'm like, yo, that's beautiful. Keep doing that. This volunteer rode bikes. And I was like, that's a common ground between you guys. Keep, keep fixing bikes. And then that just led me to like, could you imagine if we had a bike shop and like everyone like they lived on the street because a major problem, like you have all these concrete needs. People need socks, they need shoes, they need food, they need whatever. And it's like, but behind every concrete need, there's a deeper issue. There's a deeper, uh, an issue like a lack of access, a lack of ownership. And I'm like, and then the guys and gals that had a bicycle had a night and day different experience because they could get around the city better. They could, they were freer to go find opportunities to go hustle up whatever services job opportunities whatever it was and so one day we got like 25 broken bikes donated and we we're like all right i bought a shipping container dropped it on the property put all the bikes in it threw some tools in it said that's called the recycle bin it's open two days a week you need transportation go figure it out and that's basically what we did and then we did that for several years in that location at this drop-in center well what happens now is that neighborhood's rapidly gentrifying and so the police, like all the new neighbors, the not in my backyard neighbors moving into the city are like, we don't want all these poor people here. And so they start calling city council and talking to the mayor who sends the police and code enforcement to start beating us up. Meanwhile, I have all these people working with us that are like, they come in as, you know, folks living on the streets, but they're like, I want to help. I want to contribute. So they start cooking the coffee. They start running the showers. They start stocking the shelves. And it's not like jobs. It's just we believe in the work and we want to be contributing members of this community. And so everybody would be pitching in. But one of the things I realized was like, man, like it's not right though, because this, some of these dudes are working as hard or harder than us. They're working basically full-time jobs now, but they don't get compensated and they still sleep under a bridge. And I don't feel like this was very beautiful, but I still feel like the community needs to take care of them. And I'm not a good enough fundraiser to, to get everyone a house. And so um, we, so we're getting closed and I'm having these thoughts, like we should start learning how to make money. And I visited a nonprofit bike shop in another state and was like, oh my God, you can sell donated bikes, like refurbished donated bikes. I was like, maybe that's a revenue stream. So I started snatching like name brand bikes. Like you don't need this to get a job. Let me see if I could sell it. And we started doing some pop-up shops. We'd fix these bikes up and then I'd like pop up at an event like a farmer's market and sell a few bikes and be like, Oh, people will buy bikes from us. Convince myself. Meanwhile, we got ran out of the neighborhood. So I'd been renting a building that I'd raised enough money to rent and I lost it. So I was like, well, I have the rent money. So I'll rent a retail space and I'm going to sell bikes out of it. And so we just pivoted to do that. And we took our food distribution stuff. And we'd started doing that as a mobile model. Like we take a truck out and just, so now we're sharing food all over the city. 
meeting people all over the place. And we launched uh, Wubble Bikes actually on Halloween 2017, which incidentally is just when we were ready. Incidentally, that's the same, you know, that's like a, an anniversary of my car accident, which is just meaningful to me that it was also right. Halloween. But the reason we opened on Halloween was it's in a mall and the mall was doing trick-or-treating and we weren't quite ready to open, but we're like, there's kids out here that want candy. Open the doors. Let's give out candy, <laughs> invite friends over. We're like, ah, it's a soft opening. And we just stayed open ever since. Um, and, and yeah, so we're on our fourth year now. Um, so well-built bikes is a nonprofit bike shop. We sell, uh, refurbished bikes at really affordable prices. And then we, and we have a full service repair, a repair shop with, uh, we've sent our mechanics to get certified with certified technicians that could do that work. And then we take all of the sales and service revenue and we invest it into a couple things and earn a bike program. So people that don't have money can get a bike through an investment of community service hours. So they buy their bike with time. And then we also do sliding scale repairs. So there's a lot of poor folks like those people we knew originally that like have a bike. It's a great gift, but they can't afford to fix it when it breaks down. And we were like, man, we want to keep them out of landfills. We want to keep these people moving. And so we'll just offer our services. Like there's a price. But if you can't pay that price, it'll just drop until you can do it. Like, what can you pay, basically? So it's mm-hmm. a kind of pay what you want model that just starts at like a market rate. Like, here's what it's actually not even market rate. It's under market rate to begin with. And then it just drops. So we're like the people's bike shop now. We've been there about um, four years and um, doing a bunch of Erna bikes and bike sales. And we're right next to USF. So we're right next to a college where we have a lot of students coming in there looking for, and we're just trying to help people not go to Walmart where you can buy toys that look like bikes, but not really bikes, like in, in, almost in a technical way. I think they get around standards that way, but we're not, we don't do much with those big box store, like Walmart bikes. We sell like old treks that we refurbish. So you can get a, a good bike. Yeah. Kind of the gap in the market that I saw was you can get an affordable bike at a pawn shop or a Walmart, but it's not reliable. And you can get a reliable bike at a new bike shop, but it's not affordable. And where we were like, well, why don't we just get right in the middle and go, we're going to make affordable, reliable bikes for everybody so that everyone can have access to affordable, reliable transportation, which was a way to get at that issue of access that so many of those so a lot of people can earn a bike, then they can meet a lot of their own more basic needs. They can get their own food or start a little business or go visit their family. And, and that's what we've seen happen with, you know, folks that have been empowered by that vehicle. Right. That's awesome. And uh, talk to me about the weekly group rides that you do with the community, like who participates and what's been the impact of that initiative. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of like, you know, we've, we've mentioned a bunch of stuff, right? So we, we had a house and we had like, uh, you know, gardens and this drop-in center and we have a handful of other projects that we do. And in my mind, I, I would say all of it, the way I, I would say is like, we set tables that bring together di- diverse populations. You know, a lot of us are alienated from one another by economics or by race or whatever, but I, I'm just, deeply convinced that we need each other like the rich and the poor really need each other it's what what i experience like they have something i need and i have something they need and we're better together right so no us and them just us and so i want to set tables and so it it used to just be we set actual tables like we're going to have a community dinner and you should come Uh, like the poor that need a sandwich and the rich that want to volunteer but like get them to the same table to hear each other's stories like to try to recreate what happened to me in that alley basically and so that is at the heart of everything we do. And so the group ride is like a table. The whole bike shop's a table we set to bring people together. But the group ride is a place where we can say, you know, 
there's a lot of people that ride bikes for necessity. They just don't have another way to get around. And there's a lot of people that ride bikes for health or recreation. Um, and so it's like, well, whether necessity or recreation, we want to ride together. And so it's next that we you know, tell college students, like, why don't you come ride with us? Folks that do the earn a bike, why don't you come ride with us? You know, rich cyclists, why don't you come ride with us? Um, and it's, it's so every Tuesday night, we get a group of people together right after the shop closes and we ride a few miles at a really casual pace. And then we mm -hmm. go grab some barbecue afterwards. So we do a big circle about six, seven miles. And then there's a barbecue joint right down the street from the mall that we're at. So we stop and just get some food together and then ride back to the mall. And it's, it's, it's just an excuse to be together really and ride, have some fun. Um, and so, yeah, we do that every Tuesday night since, since we opened. That's beautiful, man. I love it. I love it too. Um, it's, it's really fun. Yeah. What was, um, or, or I guess what are like the biggest challenges involved for you in running, um, well, but bikes and, and also like growing it. Bandwidth. I mean, there's only so much any one of us can do and I want to do everything. Um, and it isn't so like for me, like, it's not just well-built bikes. Like we have these other programs, we have these grocery distributions and we've got these gardens. And so like the last three years, honestly, I neglected all of our other programs. We had some capable volunteers in place. I was like, you guys hold it down. I got to build the bike shop with Chris. It was really Chris and I like launched the bike shop. He's kind of like co-founder in that. Who's now the head technician. He's basically helping run the entire shop. Cause lately I'm like, like it's open right now. I'm not there right? That took, that's just recently that I'm stepping out of that. But the biggest challenge is we, we had no working capital. We, we, it's hand to mouth. Um, we got to create everything. I like that. Like that's fun, but I also know like things took us way longer than they would have had we had a little capital or had we been able, like right now, I mean, it's like, I need staff, but I can't afford staff. So, because even the staff we have, like even Chris and I were like, look, we're going to just like take stipends like any business founder. It's like, I don't get a paycheck. Cause like we can't afford it. We need to pay that. We need to keep the lights on. We need to put some inventory on the floor. We need some tools. And so we've just like, it's been that way all along. And, um, and it's been a real test. Like it's, you know, there are times I really struggle with that. Um, I mean, I, it's hard to create something out of nothing. And, and I don't think I've been particularly good at like fundraising. So like, which is part of why I want to try to make money. Like, I'm like, now I want to build businesses that meet the needs of our community. And I have like another, I have like a list of businesses that I want to create because I want to create a new kind of city, like a new kind of economy, a new kind of like model of business where it's not just even the for-profit nonprofit distinction, I think is silly. Like we're a nonprofit, but like, it's just a tax distinction. I, the, 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 the days of corporations just being sociopathic and not being good neighbors, it's a wrap. Like, and we're already seeing like, at least they're <laughs> pretending to be good for the community and greenwashing their stuff or whatever, which right. is, it's a sign. It's a good sign because it means the the world is telling them you got to be better neighbors, but, and then nonprofits, I don't think they're just going to like panhandle their way all the time. Like they're going to have to learn to make money. And so I'm just trying to get ahead of that. People call it social enterprise, but I'm like, man, it's just, I just think this is what the future of business is going to have to look like. You're not going to make it in business. If you're not, if you're not a good neighbor, if you're not a kind brand, you know, you're, and, and so that's the thing I'm trying to figure out. And I, and the bike shop is the first iteration, but it's in my mind, it's a building block of a much bigger picture. Um, 
and but 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 forever and for always and probably part of my temperament is i put too much on my plate and not just me but i like try to get everyone else to put too much on their plate too and you know it's like I, because there's so much more to do and so it's a real challenge like so either it's bandwidth and resourcing or it's leadership sobriety and appetite because you I have to dial it back. Like everything I want to accomplish, I want to accomplish tonight. And and that's foolish because you can't. So you, it's just the next right. foot in front of the next. Uh, but yeah, my, my, my eyes are always on 10 years down the road. Like I'm always like, that's where I want to be not here. Right. But you got to do it today to get, I mean, that's, that's what work is to sacrifice today mm -hmm. for the tomorrow you dream of. And, and I have a, a, a real dream for tomorrow for our city. Um, and actually I would say that's, I often define our work. Like, remember I said, I wanted to be an artist. I was like, I think of what we do as a kind of art, as a kind of um, performance art, like a dress rehearsal. Like we're acting like that world exists right now in full view of everybody, right? It's like the house was that. It's like, yeah, people lock their doors. Let's do the opposite. And and like, it's weird because people take you, you living that way as a critique. I'm like, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not saying you shouldn't have nice things or lock your doors or be worried about safety and security or middle-class values. I'm just saying I don't, which is interesting because people read that as critique, as finger pointing, which we weren't necessarily doing, but I like that they felt that way. And I've always, I've always, that's kind of how I think. I'm like, man, I am rehearsing tomorrow today. And, and I do see what we do as a type of art. At least that's how I tell myself I haven't completely abandoned the artistic creative pursuit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And, and yeah. Um, especially with today's younger generation, like the Gen Z and millennials too, they, they're not kind of a, they want to work for companies that actually stand for something that's oh, yeah. Know, that's yeah, all yeah, mm -hmm. positive and yeah. That's environment right. or whatever it is. Yeah. And so you're either going to have to pretend and I think pretending is going to work for a while, but not ultimately that's a lot like being nice. Right. Yeah. Like it's not going to work out. It's not a good long-term solution. Businesses mm -hmm. are now trying to be nice. Um, but there's only a handful that are actually being kind, like good neighbors, good for the world. Like where people would be like, I'm so glad that company is in our city, mm -hmm. but we want to be that for our city for sure. Yeah. Do you, do you hope to expand uh, the well to other cities? So uh, interesting. I am working with some people, some like-minded people from other cities. There are people like me, other places that I've met and we've formed a little coalition, so to speak. And we talk a lot and I'm actually just, I today booked a plane ticket to go get in a room with a bunch of them in the near future, just to talk about city building is the way we're kind of thinking about this. And, um, and, and I don't know that I care that the brand carries over. And I recognize there's like an emergent thing happening. What I mean by that is like you, this thing is popping up everywhere, whether it's us or someone else, like this is emerging in the world and I want to find where it's emerging and team up. And so there are things like the well, other places that go by different names. There's a thing, there's a group in Birmingham, Alabama, that calls themselves Common Thread. 
there's a, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, that's one example. There's a handful, there's people in Atlanta, there's people in Portland, there's, and it's like, these people are bubbling up and we want to form a bit of an alliance with them. Now, well-built bikes could reasonably, I'm like, every city should have a well-built bikes or a well-built bikes type thing where you've got people that are being neglected and bikes as a resource that are being wasted. And if somebody would just take those two undervalued assets and combine them, there's a real solution, a real asset. And I'm like, that's true in every urban core around this country. And so I'm like, that could scale. My personal, um, it's, it's interesting. Like I am dedicated to Tampa for as long and as deep as I can tell. Like I'm, I'm here, but yeah. I'm also very interested in it happening elsewhere. So like, yes and no, like I want to scale our work in this city, but I'm, I'm, I also know whether we do it or not, like I want it to take over the planet, right? Like the ethos, the DNA, uh, I want to work its way through everywhere every school, every uh, system, every enterprise. And, and I do think I'm, I'm so yes and no, I don't, I don't know if that's a clear enough answer, but yeah. Yeah. So maybe not being like the CEO of this interstate or international well-built corporation or I wouldn't do that. I, in fact, I'm, I'm so interested in decentral. I actually think centralization is a major problem in the world. And so it's why I'm so excited about blockchain stuff. Like the potential of decentralization um, is so beautiful. Um, I've forever, we've been like a part of a little network here in Tampa that are like been talking about, like there's this image. I don't even know what book this is from. It might be titled the starfish and the spider or something, but it's like that. I don't know if you know this, but like a spider, if you kill the middle, all the legs die, obviously. But a starfish, you can chop it into a bunch of pieces and throw it back in the water and they all turn into starfish. And that's a better kind of organization where it's like the DNA is embedded in every participant in this. You could break our community apart and we're all going to recreate it somewhere else. Like, and, and that is a better model. I don't want to be a leader of an organization. I want to be a participant in a movement. And, and that's actually more interesting to me. At some point, I may just go entirely to like the, this, uh, you know, web three blockchain world and actually just give up the, the incorporated 501c3. I'm not sure that's even going to be meaningful in a few years. Like, does there need to be an organization? Should there be a CEO? I don't even know. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, re, I'm a reluctant CEO. I started the organization reluctantly. I'm way more of an anarchist at heart. And I actually <laughs> am like, this is the best tool available to me. But as soon as there's a better one, I'll throw it down. And so, no, I do not want to be a CEO of something that's over the whole uh, planet or something like some central leader that that doesn't seem good. Yeah. To me. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Well, cool. Let's get into these uh, last uh, few questions here. Let's say we meet again on the street in five years. What would you want to be telling me that you've accomplished or created since this conversation? It could be personally or professionally. Yeah, I don't, I don't do a good job distinguishing between personal and professional. It's also personal to me, but um, well, that I'm building a city. So five years from now, realistically, I'd say in our, in our 501c3, we've got five LLCs right now. Um, I, I want to, so I would love to tell you that we got a handful more businesses up and running. 
Um, we've been able to acquire some houses for the formerly homeless that we were building community like our old community in these houses around the city. Um, I would love to tell you that this network of people that I just flew out to meet with is like we have a, a real coalition with real shared values that we're actually communicating across the country and learning from one another's experiences in those places. Um, I'd love to tell you that we found uh, funding. So what would be a dream come true for funding for me is that every, I would love to be able to say every single person in my city is a monthly donor of like at least like a dollar a month. Like basically everyone has taken ownership of this work mm -hmm. that everyone's anted in, in some way that, that like we really have, we're on our way to a well-built city, like that our city has been transformed. Um, now I recognize five years is a very short amount of time. Um, and that's, so it's what I'm aiming at. And I might say it's more like 10 years. So I might be like, I'm halfway, whatever. I don't know. Yeah. I would love to tell you that, um, we, we, we've staffed ourselves out, you know, that we've, that I've been able to steal away time to write some of these lessons down. Uh, because I, I don't stop long enough to write. So that's why I love like recording vocally. Cause I'm like, <laughs> it's the best I got. I can sit down and I could talk, but like to sit and write, but I, I would love to like try to put some of this in, in some pass onable forms for others to templatize mm -hmm. some lessons. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's great. I would love to tell you we're sustaining everything we're doing by our own work because that would mean we can always tell the truth. Because the, 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 the thing that's vulnerable about organizations, and I, I noticed this as soon as I started fundraising, it's like, man, this guy's a donor, but he's also a racist. And I'm not, I'm scared to speak up because I'm serving all of these people. You see what I'm saying? Like there's examples of ways that we bite our tongue because of a need to survive. And I'm not comfortable with that. I don't want to have to bite my tongue to the mayor to the city, to whatever. It's like, I want to be able to tell the truth regardless of the cost. Um, and it's not like I run around biting my tongue a lot, but I've seen myself do it. And I think there's a, a temptation to surviving and politicking that I'm afraid of. And so if we can sustain ourselves and build significant businesses that are good for our city, they that will empower us to sit, let's say, speak truth to power in ways that we otherwise couldn't, that we could say what needs said to the others in our city without too much concern for vulner our vulnerability um, or the vulnerability of the vulnerable people that we're serving, which is actually the way it's not like I'm worried about these people hurting me, but if you hurt us, it'll hurt these people that are in, in real need in our city. And so I've, I've, I've watched myself kind of like tiptoe sometimes and I'm like, man, I don't ever want to do that again. So I want to build bigger businesses that we right. can then say what we need to say whenever into whoever right yeah kind of going kind of going back to that kind versus nice that's right well no it's exactly right it's exactly that. and and it is it's like oh sometimes like and there are some concrete situations that i can think of where it's like man i did not say what needed said and it was wrong and i regret it and i'm like that's you know to put in christian terms was sin like i'm guilty for not speaking up when i should have on behalf of this vulnerable person or not, or population, or even just to correct this person, just in general, because they were the mayor, because it was a cop, because that was our biggest donor. Like, oh, you let your biggest donor uh, 
like and and by the way i think it was unkind to that person not like oh i need to shut them down because they're hurting other people that i'm actually quite good at that if they're directly hurting other people but i'm actually like not correcting these things not helping hold a mirror up to people to see like you realize that you're you're um let's just say your addiction to comfort and safety is making you um, incapable of doing good for other people. Your concern with liability is making your business not share with the poor. Like grocery stores are gonna throw this food away and pour bleach on top of it because they're scared of a lawsuit from a poor population or something like that. And I'm like, this is just example after example after example after example. And I'm like, man, like, there's too much to point out. And I want to be able to hold a mirror up because I actually think it's a kindness, even if it's harsh to be like, hey, man, do you realize what's happening with you? Um, and then, of course, that affects other people. That's part of what's going on in the world. And I feel like we're too nice or scared to say anything. And I've gotten over being nice, um, but not always maybe because I, I look back and I'm like, I think it's cowardice. Like, that's what I call myself when I don't say what needs said. I'm like, you're a coward. And you better, and like, you should try harder tomorrow, mm -hmm. like to speak up and say what needs said. Um, because, you know, people say a lot of things like I value this. I don't believe in that. I believe in this. And I just don't buy it. I'm like, the only way I know what I believe is by watching what I do. And so I could say I'm against that, but when I don't do something, I'm a liar. And like that, that to me is the metric. So when I do my own let's say searching and fearless moral inventory, which is what 12 steps encourages us to do. It's like, I have to look at those things and be like, I'm a coward. And, um, you know, and, and like that is, nobody would really define me that way. I'm actually quite reckless and I'm afraid of almost nothing. And yet I don't know how else to define not doing that, right? In certain situations, like, well, you were scared to lose funding. And it's like, well, that's real, it's practical. And it's not like, I don't wanna be diplomatic. Like that's still good. You know, but it's like, I want to still be true to what I, what I believe to be right and straight and good to aim at the future that I believe we all hope for. And, um, and so, yeah, if I could say like, I'm still on, I'm still on course, I haven't taken my eyes off. And in fact, that vision is more clear today than it was back then five years ago. And I can still say like, I still think our tombstone will read, they tried. I'm, I'm, I'd be good with that, regardless of the how far we've made it. Like, I just want to stay the course, uh, as Nietzsche said, along obedience in one direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, cool. And so, uh, as is the name of the podcast, the Driving Force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? Well, I imagine that's the thing I just said, right? So I am, mm -hmm. I am in the grip of something like I, I would say I am possessed. I'm in the grip of this vision. It is not like, it, it's not an idea that I have. It's an idea that has me, you know, it's a dream that has a hold of me. And I am, I am pulled beckoned by a power greater than myself. Right. Um, I'm submitted to this vision and, and, and honestly, back to that, I don't want to live in a world that works this way. So there's a deep, discontent with the way things are. Um, but I don't want to be someone that complains. I don't want to be someone that shakes their fist, like, or just cries about it. Um, I'm like, cool, you don't like it, then do something. 
And I, so I'm just like, and so I, I am, qu I'm quite a driven person in general. I think I've always been driven temperamentally, like goal oriented, that kind of thing. But I've, I've, I've learned to like maybe transition from goals to values. There's things I value and I, I just want to fight like hell to see those values embodied both in me and in the world around me. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know how to like, I'm like, I don't know how to communicate that very well to other people except to be like, I don't know, can you see it yet? Like, like just, you know, look, it's like a North star or something like that. But for me, mm -hmm. the, the sleight of hand in all of my work is trying to set tables where that can happen because it happened to me in those interactions. Like I sat in an alley with a dude and I've never been the same and it has haunted me. And so I'm like, well, then I try to set as many tables as I can to bring you to that table to meet magic or mama or Jimmy to sit down and be transformed by what takes place in those interactions. And um, yeah. And I'm, I'm just driven to see that happen for everybody else. Cause I, I, I believe in it. I believe in it. I believe, I really believe we need each other and we can, we can get over this shit that alienates us and divides us. I, I think most of it is petty. Um, even in the broad national debate, kind of political stuff i'm like man it's petty 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 and it's some basic stuff you learn in preschool that can fix it share um be kind uh, be a good neighbor forgive you know and um yeah and I, i'm want to give the rest of my life to i'm driven to see that happen yeah mm -hmm. yeah that's awesome and i think that's a great place to end too awesome um so john thanks again for coming on the show this is great Awesome, man. Appreciate you having me. I look forward to connecting with you again sometime soon, man. Oh yeah, for sure. Awesome. Um, where, can, where can people go to find you online? So Johnny Produce, almost everywhere. Um, okay. Back in the day, I worked at a grocery store, produce department, went by Johnny at the time. My name tag said Johnny Produce. Gmail came out. And I was like, <laughs> Johnny Produce at Gmail. So that you can email me at Johnny Produce at Gmail. And then at Johnny Produce on basically all socials. Um, get in touch. I, I would love to hear from folks. Yeah. You hit me up there and then at well bikes um social media for the bike shop and then the rest of the well is kind of like anemic in that we're not like tooting the horn i mean there is a thing but it's not worth following um <laughs> it, well bikes is a little more active um for sure okay okay awesome great and you all can also visit my website chasers.com and follow me on instagram at chasers of four for updates on new episodes thanks to everyone who's listening and see you next time